You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in studio by one of the best writers we have in the country, gifted to the world, not just a good South African writer, good writer full stop. One of my favorite writers, I gobble up every single thing that he writes, and I've always thought that he is the gold standard of narrative journalism and really getting into the textured realities of the individuals whose lives he follows very closely for a year or three or five, and then situating them in the context of our country's complex fraudulent history but also the societies they come from where they'd be deep in the rural eastern cape hinterlands where they'd be the natal midlands where they'd be the prison gang culture and its uh, sociological relationship with life on the cape flats or where they'd be an immigrant that uh, find themselves on their way to afrophobic south africa in the hope of a better life. And, of course, I'm speaking about Johnny Steinberg. He has another book out, and this one is as excellent as his other books. Uh, A lot of you were debating on my Facebook wall what your favorite one is. Uh, A lot of, um, I think, of you were saying Midlands, and uh, some of you were saying Three-Letter Plague, and a couple of you, myself included, said if you do force us to choose one, which fortunately we don't have to, uh, the number probably is still my all-time favorite. But I loved One Day in Bethlehem, and he's going to hang out with us for the next 20 minutes or so to talk about this book. Johnny, good morning. It's wonderful seeing you and uh, to have you back in the country for a couple of weeks. Wonderful seeing you too. Thanks for having me, Eusebius. Congratulations. Thank you. Does it get easier to write these? No. <laughs> Why is that? Is it the success of the previous books that you always think about? Are you able as a writer to simply get on with the project? Well, I think if if it's not hard, if you're not struggling, it's not good. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think good write, good work, whether writing or anything, mm-hmm. comes from struggle. Um, so if it starts getting easy, there's something going wrong. Mm. This book has got a wonderful cover. I really, really love it. I don't know who did the art for this cover. And the title is also fantastic, One Day in Bethlehem. There's so much in that in that title, but it's also quite an elusive title. It doesn't quite give away what the book is about. With a number, you might go, ooh, maybe it's about gangs or whatever the case might be. So let's get straight into the essence of this book. Uh, and it started off with you remembering, and we'll come back to memory later, an article you had, re- had read in a newspaper that really, really interested you. And that was the very, very interesting genesis of the story. Yeah, so so this one day in Bethlehem is the 2nd of April 1992, and Bethlehem is the small town in the Eastern Free State. And at 4 o'clock that afternoon, a white policeman was shot to death when he approached um, seven or eight black men in, in a baki who opened fire with AK-47s. Two people who were not there at the time, ordinary young black men living in Buklokong Township next to uh, Bethlehem, were picked up that night accused of bringing these men to town from Polo Park, um, east of Johannesburg, and orchestrating a robbery. And they uh, were convicted of murder on the grounds of common purpose and spent the next 19 years in jail. Mm-hmm. By the time they were released, everybody knew that they'd been innocent. And, and I mean, the book's about many things, but, mm-hmm. but w- one is what happened in these people's heads for 19 years, 19 years of, of stolen lives. That, for me, it, it is interesting how... Especially as you say, if you take your craft seriously and the, the role of the researcher seriously as you do, you don't, don't even know what the layers are that you'll be confronted with in the process exactly. of doing the research and then doing the actual writing. Because your initial impetus was, we have forgotten how revolutionary the transition was 
out of the worst of the apartheid years into democratic South Africa, not least because we started becoming jaded in the noughties about our democracy. Yeah. But if someone had, as you had said to one of my colleagues, if someone had been through the equivalent of a long slumber or long sleep and woken up, they had a pair of eyes that we no longer wore. Just talk into that as a motivation for finding that person. Well, this is, this is why I, I met Fusimo Fukeng. I, I read a, an interview with him in the Sunday Times. And weirdly, what struck me was not just that, you know, he and, and his, his friends Kolo spent 19 years behind bars for something they didn't do. It's the, the interviewer said to him, what did you see when you walked out and saw democratic South Africa for the first time in 2011? And of all the things he could have said, he said, I was sitting in a restaurant and a white wait- waitress came up to me and served me and I nearly fell off my chair. I'd never seen anything like that before. And that struck me because on the one hand, it's pretty simple. Mm. On the other hand, as you say, 2011 is a time when a country which since 1994 had really been living off hope, living off the presumption that things were going to get better, had stopped doing that and was beginning to despair, uh, was beginning to get very jaded and very cynical. Here's a man who had more reason to be angry than anybody else I've ever met in my life, walking out and seeing change. Mm. So he sees the white waitress serving him. He sees uh, all the RDP houses that have been built to the extent that he doesn't recognize Bukhlukong anymore. He Mm. said it's a rebuilt place. It is new and it's been built by democracy. Mm. And I thought, what happened in this man's head over the 19 years to see so much change and see so much hope? What what does that say about what he went through when he was behind bars? Mm. I want us to talk about some of the many themes that intersect in the book. Judge Dennis Davis and his shout remarks on one of them, which has to do with the perniciousness of the legal system and the institutional racism that is built into it. That's one element. Your book is in part a meditation on injustice, but also very interestingly, opening up again the limitations of the TRC process. And it is really, really, really fascinating that if we either completely exonerate or give a little bit of discount to men and women that were politically politically motivated to kill fellow human beings, that um, folks that were innocently rounded up might find themselves being incarcerated wrongfully. So you've got this one mechanism that is there to try and make sure we approximate political justice, but in the footnotes of that story of the TRC are inadvertent injustices that can prevail. Absolutely. I mean, one of the th- book, one of the things the book does is chart the sorts of injustices they faced during these 19 years. And as you say, the key here is institutional racism and, and that cuts across all the injustices. But hmm. the, the beginning is 1992. It's an apartheid court that, that tries them and convicts them. And, and there the racial injustice is, it stares you in the face. It shouts at you. You know, the judge calls black witnesses by their first names. He refers to the white people in their life as boss and madam, so and so. It's a, it's a, it's a stinking old apartheid court. Mm. But then they, they continue to face racial injustice in the new order. And it's more subtle. Mm. Um, it's more about individual human beings who are contractually obliged to help them, like their legal aid advocates, not doing so because they're young and black and they say they didn't commit a murder. And, you know, of course they did. <laughs> mm. um, but then the TRC, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's a tricky one. W- what happened is that they went to the TRC without giving too much away, you know, with the people who committed the crime. 
Um, everybody agreed that they had nothing to do with it. And the TRC gave amnesty to the people who committed the crime and said to these two, we accept that you're innocent and therefore we can't free you because we give amnesty to people who have committed crimes. And, and they remained another 12 years. And I think one of the things it showed about the TRC is that it was a machine that had to keep rolling blindly. Um, anything unexpected that was thrown up in it, it literally didn't know what to do with it. it just had I think to keep going. this is also where your body of work, not just this particular book, comes in. To give this book its proper due, I think we also... I'm not saying you are old, but we can now talk about the earlier and the later, uh, Johnny, (laughs) where there are certain themes that connect across your work. And this is what Dennis Davis rightly picks out, the everyday man, everyday woman, the everyday person, and how grand attempts to deal with our cleavages often resulted in the best case scenario, even if imperfectly, at the elite suddenly getting uh, along with each other, the elite beneficiaries of apartheid, the elite uh, parts of the high command structures of MK and of the various political um, parties and liberation movements. But everyday South Africans were often caught in the crossfire of these big grand narratives and their stories untold and they couldn't get justice inside mechanisms even like the TRC, notwithstanding starting in East London and having some ordinary people with uh, Desmond Tutu crying and being there. But there are tens of thousands of people that have variations on on Fusi. Absolutely. And and, and the weird thing is that that the law formally worked for Fusi and Sokolo. They applied to the Legal Aid Board for an advocate. They got one. They, they lost their appeal. They got another advocate. They applied to go to the TRC. They were heard there. So formally, the law treated them well. In substance, it, it kept, um, it, it really just kept destroying them again and again and again because of who they were. When, and the lesson there is that you can have good legal process, but the, the human beings controlling them have to be intelligent, have to be sensitive, have to be listening. A last point on this, and then we'll move to a couple of other themes to give the public a sense of what the book is about. The coincidence of this book and how the Netflix series, When They See Us, has exploded is incredible. I mean, this book could have been titled, When Will They See Us? Speaking to the Everyday Man's Need to be Rendered Visible for Injustice. So when we talk about the institutional racism, it's not just the racism in the court. What struck me is when the doctrine of common purpose is used, it is sometimes used in such a way to demonstrate how racist cops themselves can be. The black men that were rounded up were not seen as individuals, were they? They were seen as one cohort, as if black people, of course, can't be individuals. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think that, that they were ever seen as individuals throughout this 19-year process. And something Fussy said to me the first time I met him really struck me. He said that I, I walked into prison with a grade nine. And I knew that I had to educate myself as fast as I could for one reason only, to be heard. I needed to speak Mm. in my own voice. Uh, People have been speaking for me and they get what I'm saying wrong. Mm. Um, And and he understood that, you know, we're using a visual metaphor. We're saying visible, invisible. Mm. He he had to develop a voice and and it took him years to do so because he he wasn't equipped with one. He He was not heard for many, many years. 19 minutes after 11 o'clock, we are in conversation with Johnny Steinberg. 
who of course has twice won the coveted uh, Alan Payton Award for his excellent work. And he has another book out, One Day in Bethlehem. You definitely want to go and buy it, read it, and sever every single line. It's not just an incredibly heartbreaking, important historical story about one person, a couple of persons really, being wrongly incarcerated. Uh, all too familiar for many black South Africans especially. Um, but quite apart from that, which we'll touch on as well if we have enough time. And it's just beautifully written. It's vintage Johnny as well from a stylistic point of view. And I've got a couple of questions my uh, producer Laura and I were chuckling about uh, some of the familiar aspects of uh, Johnny's writing when you compare this book to his other books. And I also want to raise that because I know that many of you are fans of his entire oeuvre. Literature Corner. 22 minutes after 11 o'clock, we're chatting to Johnny Steinberg, one of the finest writers in the country, and he's here promoting his book, One Day in Bethlehem. I've seen from some of the launches that many of you have bought it, have you started reading it? Maybe you've already finished reading it, or you just want to say how's it, or ask him a general question, give us a quick call on 011-883-0702. You put in a lot of history in the early part of the book that was also, even on its own, really important. As an academic, as a researcher, I think one of your strengths is not just knowing stylistically the importance of writing plainly, which is why your books are travel so well in the country and abroad, but clearly you've got a, an important sense of, of history. You talked about Paula Park a little bit earlier, for example. I must say, I enjoyed those chapters immensely nice. because it gave a sense of the making of the politics of the other minor characters. And you do them just because although there is one central character, the other characters are rich and interesting. And any one of them could have been the, 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 the central character. I could imagine, for example, variations on your your book where Fusi is minor and the other ones are lifted exactly. to the surface. Exactly. There are about a dozen people who could have been the major character. You know, one of the things that really intrigued me is how did these eight men end up in one vehicle together on the 2nd of April, 1992? And, and that's a story about the last century of South African history. Mm. Why on earth did they all end up in one informal settlement east of Johannesburg? They came from all over the place. They spoke different languages. And so just through an accretion of their stories, I wanted to give a sense of the history primarily of movements mm. um, that throws people into a situation where they suddenly have to decide whether to kill or not. You know, these terrible moral choices ordinary mm. people have to make. One theme that I think particularly scholars in psychology and literature will enjoy and it was so funny I mean, thinking about this in relation to your book because I've also read the manuscript of Ronnie Kastrels of his forthcoming memoir, Catching Tadpoles. And Ronnie does a lot of meditation on memory, how reliable is one's memory. And for one of his previous books, he was criticized for inventing a memory as a young Ronnie that couldn't have been true. And being the nerd that he is, he spent a lot of time this time around speaking to psychologists that have done incredible research into what children remember and whether memories are sometimes made up as we become adults. That is also an important theme in this book, isn't it? Because you struggle to get some of the material for the transcripts and the audio that go with them. But what's really cool about that, intended or inadvertent, is that I tell you as the subject what my true memories are. Sincerely, I've internalized them, and it turns out that there are often objective realities and then there are internalized realities, and they sometimes part ways. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm, I could be right or wrong, but I think that what happened to Fusi Mofukeng's memory is that he took what happened 
at the TRC hearing six years later and transposed that back onto the 2nd of April 1992 and did not know that he was doing that. And, uh, you know, literally his, his memory of the TRC hearing became visual memories of what happened on that day. And I struggled with that. I thought, what are my ethical obligations to him? This is the most important day in his life. Mm. You know, do I say the way he remembered it is wrong? Mm. And in the end... And some I, of his other memories, like about dad very and much youth, so. are very positive, right? And I would imagine one of the ethical things that you would have struggled with, which is quite interesting. I've spoken previously to members of the missing persons task team within the NPA when they discover real truths about family members that yeah. had jumped borders. And I think, oh, yeah, well, my cousin Johnny left. He never came back, but he died a hero. His remains get found, and the researcher discovers, no, dude, he was actually a drunkard next door. He was never actually even a hero. Yeah. Then you are confronted with, do I have an obligation to tell the truth, or do I simply actually keep this person soothed by the memories they have of their loved one? No, exactly. There's a similar kind of question that yeah. you were confronted with. And there's another question, which which I only realized late in the day, which is that, you know, it's habitually thought that that for for the people who, who uh, the characters who people literature, are middle-class people, cultured people, extremely sophisticated people. It's thought that those are the people who have the, the depth and the inner complexity to make for literature. Yes. And Fusi is, on the one hand, a victim, a marginal person, thrown around by the system, thrown around by historical forces. Mm. But what happened to him in prison is that he used memory, he used invention, he used imagination to, I think, rewrite the whole history of his own past – uh, partly as fictive, partly as inventive. But that process of invent invention, I think, reconstituted himself as a person with power and with agency. Hmm. And it made me realize that not, not just that all of us are enormously complex, um, but that the power of invention can be extraordinary. And, and I think that he saved himself and remade himself through what he imagined. I've got a couple of fun, silly questions in the three, four minutes that are remaining, if I can. Um, and this is what uh, Laura and I, my producer, were alluding to because we've read, between us, we've read all of your books. I've, I've read them and I love them. There's always a car and you're always outside. What is this car <laughs> that you have? There I am. I'm sitting outside. I'm waiting for Eusebius to come in and I unlock his best memories when he is in the car and I'm driving him away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's partly circumstantial. I mean, I spend, you know, a year or two, sometimes longer with somebody and we go places together. So, mm -hmm. so the time we actually spend most together is in a car. Mm -hmm. But but more substantially, a car is a really intimate space. Mm. You know, it's just the two of you. You're physically in close proximity. Stuff happens in cars. Yeah. And then there is the other thing for me that's really interesting. There's only one part in the book. I couldn't find more than one unless I'm misremembering where you are self-conscious of your, as one might say, facticity where you say, as a white man, maybe, or as a white researcher or middle class, how do you deal with it, particularly in these in this day and age, right, when there's enormous, more than even 10, 15 years ago, when we read, say, Midlands or The Number, there was a different kind of public discourse around who tells stories and what kind of legitimacy you have and what do you do with your awareness of being an outsider. So there you are, you're parking in parts of the Eastern Cape, parts of the Cape Flats or the Midlands or whatever, has that evolved in terms of your sense of how you are constrained or what you must do with who you are? You're an academic, you're middle class, you're a white man. What does that mean in relation to your subject? No, I, I think that I deal with that better now than I used to in the past. And mm. I think there's a balance to be struck, and I hope that I do strike it. On the one hand, I can never, ever claim to speak for other people. 
you know, I, my voice is not Fusi's voice. It would be hugely presumptuous for me to pretend that it is. And so I need to write a book in a way that draws attention to the fact that this is me speaking. Mm. And at the same time, to wring my hands all the time and saying I'm white and I can't know would, would, no. would ruin the book. So it's, it's about striking a balance. You know, I do think that... I think you do strike that balance, yeah. by the way. Because right. the worst thing to do would have been to be self-indulgent and give us an exactly. introductory chapter where you beat yourself up before you get on with your work. Yeah, I think that's book ruining. Yeah, it's, I think it's perverse even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that, that telling one another stories, but in the right way, self-consciously, not speaking for another person is really, really important because mm. the alternative is to bury ourselves in silos and erode public space. We need to imagine each other. It's a very, very important political act to imagine each other as intimately as we can. Last question. I've always wondered, and I know you don't have to choose between them, but we are forced as writers to write long and short form. I love your columns as well. I've always enjoyed them. I like your books more than your columns as a fan of all of your work. And I think the reason I do, speaking for myself as a reader, is that what you do here, when you really tease out the texture, the context, the familial relations, and really getting into the character, that's far harder to pull off in an 800-word piece or a 1,000-word piece where you say, I've met you, CBS, in Grahamstown where he's born. You spend 500 words trying to give a reductive view of Eusebius and then hopefully make some political observations. Do you enjoy both forms equally? Do you think that the narrative style and technique of your long-form writing translates as easily into columns? So which, what, what are your preferences across these? I think they're completely incomparable. I mean, for me, columns are exercises to test out an idea, see how it works. Mm. They're written quickly. You know, a book is a, a long labor of sweat and love and obsession. They're, they're incomparable to me. Mm. Well done on this book. I hope you sell incredible amount of copies. My listeners love reading. They love buying books. I know they're going to go and buy your book. And then despite your heavy schedule, maybe we can have you on Skype or on the phone and have a longer chat with the listeners after about six months or so. I'd love that. Thanks so much for coming in, Johnny. Thanks, Eusebius.